0: there you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome Mr. Christopher check. So
1: I uh, I'm, I'm always I really am honored to, to be invited back here. We're going to talk a little bit about St. Nicholas tonight but not very much. It is and it's an important day in the Czech house, we'll come to that. There are many miraculous stories from the life of St. Nicholas the Wonderworker, as our friends in the East know him. The best known comes from the life of St. Nicholas written by Michael the Archimandrite in around the 8th century, about 400 years or more after the death of St. Nicholas. An Archimandrite we would call an abbot, right? Uh, He would have responsibility for at least one, but probably several monasteries from the Greek mandra, which means uh, sheep, sheepfold, or herd. Uh, Michael, despite his uh, many duties, his many duties notwithstanding, found time to pen the first complete life of St. Nicholas. He was requested to do this by someone named Leo. We don't know anything about Leo Uh, we could guess we'd probably be right that he was a a fellow monk. The story takes place when Nicholas is a young man that is before he's Bishop of Myra. His parents have died and they've left him a considerable fortune. This is how Michael the Archimangite describes young Nicholas this way here. After his parents had gone to the Lord and left him much property and an abundance of money and possessions he reckoned that he now had God as his father. So he's not yet Bishop of Myra uh, but his life since his time in utero has been marked by miraculous events and acts of heroic sanctity including limiting his nursing on Wednesdays and Fridays to just one feeding, right, at his mother's breast. So Nicholas took our Friday abstinence considerably more seriously than we do in our age. Here's the tale, a citizen of Patera who was well born but lost his fortune and went from being well off to extreme indigence. The man was Nicholas's next door neighbor. He had three daughters who according to Michael were both shapely and very attractive to the eye. And he was willing, that is the father, to station them in a brothel so that he might thereby acquire the necessities of life for himself and his household. For no man among the lordly class or the powerful would marry the girls, they had no dowries, and even among the lower classes and those who owned the least bit of something, there was no one well-minded enough to do this. And so the man looked away from his salvation and determined to sell them in to prostitution. But the Lord who loves humankind, continues Michael the Archimandrite, who never wishes his own creation to become us, both to rescue him along with his whole whole household from poverty and destruction and to restore readily his previous prosperity. For when he learned of the situation of Nicholas, Nicholas, for when he learned of the situation, Nicholas pondered in his mind the advice of Solomon's that is full of help. God loves a person who is a cheerful giver. The young saint then anonymously provides in turn dowries for each of the three daughters by throwing gold coins tied in cloth sacks through the man's open window. Each daughter is married well and Nicholas, this is important, saves the man from carrying out his plan and harming his soul. Subsequent versions of the tale report Nicholas finding the window locked so he has to drop the money down through the chimney, subsequent versions Report that the girls had hung their stockings there to dry or put their shoes by the fireplace to dry, and the money falls in the shoes. Doubtless, it is this story and subsequent accounts of Nicholas's heroic generosity and intervention on behalf of the poor, the afflicted, the imperiled, right, sailors, that have served as the origin of the saints' transformi- transformation into a central figure of Christmas celebrations throughout history in Catholic and Orthodox countries and in Protestant ones and even in the non-believing countries of the present age, such as our own. I'm in favor of Saint Nicholas's central role in Christmas celebrations. He's a central figure in the Czech house. His icon rests on a stand on a desk in the entranceway to our home. My maternal grandfather is Nicholas. an Italian immigrant from outside Naples. My older brother, whom some of you know, Father Paul Czech, his father, Paul Nicholas Check. that's his middle name, and my oldest son, who's now 22 or something, uh, of four boys, uh, is, is Nicholas. What I do not favor is the transformation of the story at the center of which is anonymous charity done right. out of love for Jesus Christ, right? Anonymous charity, let not your left hand know what your right is doing, Matthew 6.3, to what is in fact today a celebration of greed and consumption. By the way, the St. Nicholas story is also one of the defense of marriage, right? I think we should include St. Nicholas along with John the Baptist and Thomas More when we're invoking these great saints for the crisis of marriage that we face in our own age, but to marriage in a moment. I start with this transformation of a Christmas tradition into the festival of greed because it is about this time every year that conservatives, conservative Americans, especially watchers of Fox News, get exercised about what has come to be called the war on Christmas. You've all heard these reports. Municipalities outlawing nativity scenes on the public square, carols stricken from the Christmas concerts in public schools, excuse me, holiday concerts. I, this this one I laugh at, because of course, what holiday are they talking about? Holiday is holy day. What holiday is speaking of? So they've gotten on, they've caught on to this, so now they they call them win, winter concerts, right? Handel's Messiah ruled uh, by a judge as a violation of the, of the separation of church and state. That's real. Chain retailers forbidding the checkout girls from wishing customers a Merry Christmas. Also in this war, equal time given to minor festivals such as Hanukkah, holidays that few in the West have ever heard of such as Bodhi Day and Diwali, and events celebrated by crackpots and devil worshippers such as the winter solstice. Periodically, one of the Islamic holidays that migrates around the Gregorian calendar will fall in December and then we can all go to the post office and buy our, you know, Eid stamps. By the way, those of you who like to forward around, email, internet rumors, The aid stamp was not cast under Barack Obama. It was cast under George, Islam is a Religion of Peace, Bush. And it was George Bush who was in the White House when our country gave official recognition complete with a rose garden ceremony of a holiday, or better, anti-holiday that belongs in a category all by itself. This holiday is called Kwanzaa. And the category is holidays created by anti-Christian black nationalists determined to create, in the words of Kwanzaa's founder, an oppositional alternative to the spookism, mysticism, and non-earth-based practices which plague us as a people. What are spookism, mysticism, and non-earth-based practices? Christianity. Kwanzaa's inventor, a man named Ronald McKinley Everett, who renamed himself Melana Karenga, declared Jesus was a psychotic. He was no God. Christianity is a white religion. Any Negro who believes in it is a sick Negro. Now, Everett himself suffered from a series of uh, severe psychoses, but dwelling on the details of his sordid, misogynistic, paranoid, terrorist, criminal career and character is not going to help us much tonight. The facts are there for the curious to discover. I'm not recommending it. I do mention Kwanzaa, however, to illustrate my point, which is that the worst parts of the war on Christmas are those in which Christians themselves are willing participants. I, I don't mean to single out President Bush. I know this is probably a room full of Republicans. Uh, for my part, I really haven't liked an American president since George Washington, <laughs> but who, who, who probably died, probably died a Catholic or may have died a Catholic, right? But nonetheless, When George Bush honored Kwanzaa with a Rose Garden ceremony in December of 2002, he praised Kwanzaa, these are his words, for its ability, here's the quote, to unite people of diverse backgrounds and beliefs. Now, I don't know the heart of George Bush. He says he's a Christian. I'll take him at his word. But he ascribes to Kwanzaa, by the way, an event of cultural segregation, the single unique quality that Christianity claims for itself and only for itself, right? The one thing that can truly unite people of diverse backgrounds and beliefs is Christianity. Judaism does not make this claim. Islam sort of makes it, but by force of violence, right? The claim only finds truthful expression in Christianity, thus Catholic, right, universal. So for a Christian to locate this truth In another religion, especially one that that, that makes the claim of separation, is embarrassing, but it's something worse. It's apostasy, and this is the real problem with this war on Christmas. It is a war on Christianity, and it is one in which Christians are too often willing participants. Now, none of us here, I'm sure tonight, would say something so shocking as President Bush did. But I do think that we have become inured to statements so shocking. The president's praise of Kwanzaa should really jar us, but it does not. And we should wonder why. Pius X would not have wondered why. In his first encyclical on the restoration of all things in Christ, A Supremi, 1903, he writes, We are terrified beyond all else by the, de-. my friends, popes don't use words lightly. Terrified. We are terrified beyond all else by the disastrous state of human society today. For who can fail to see that society is at the present time more than in any past age suffering from a terrible and deep-rooted malady which developing every day and eating into its inmost being is dragging it to destruction. You understand, venerable, venerable brethren, what this disease is, apostasy from God. That which in truth nothing is more allied with ruin according to the word of the prophet For behold, they that go far from thee shall perish. So I suggest that tonight, rather than wringing our hands about whether or not the checkout girl at Walmart or Walgreens wished a season's greetings instead of Merry Christmas, we might consider the extent to which we inured to this age of apostasy willingly or unwillingly or out of some misguided sense of tolerance participate in this war on Christmas. The Christmas question before us is not So much how we defend it in the town halls, the village greens, the public squares, but how well we keep Christmas in our homes. For in keeping Christmas as best we can we truly defend the faith. So to that end, two proposals. One, drop out of the consumption of Chinese made electronics, right, the festival of greed. And two, do not let your focus on the substance of Christmas be clouded by the sentimentality of Christmas. The first one is really easy, right? Is there anybody here who's prepared to argue that we need to buy more things in order to celebrate the incarnation of the second person of the blessed Trinity? I'm not suggesting we stop exchanging gifts, but you know, you can, we can temper our participation in the, in the consumption, for example, by limiting our gifts to locally made products, right, or at least those sold in locally owned shops. When I lived in Rockford, Illinois, the McCready's could testify, Rockford, Illinois, they make the very best hammers in the world. They're made by a company called Estwing. They're still made in the United States. They are the finest hammers in the world, right? So this was a gift that I knew wherever I went to somebody's house, or I was was always given an an Estwing hammer. So surely there's something other than bad legislation that's made here in the nation's capital (laughs) that you can give. I know Virginia has a magnificent and growing wine industry, right? By the way, a bottle of wine, from my perspective, is always the right gift, right? <laughs> it's always the right size. Actually, a case is the right size, <laughs> yeah? And, 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 and the right color, by the way, is red. <laughs> or oh, oh, right. white. Another way to temper the retail frenzy is to give gifts made by religious orders. My friends, the Benedictines of Mary Queen of Apostles, They. Uh uh they're, they're out in uh on on, on the field, on the plains there in uh in Missouri, and now they've you know taken the DECA label by storm, uh record uh, beautiful CDs if you like male voices, the Norbertines of St. Michael's Abbey, um are they're, they're in, in Orange County, California. Uh they're, they're, so so there are many ways to give gifts uh and drop out of drop out of the consumption. All right. But the best way, really, to open, uh, your heart, or the best way to turn your back on the Festival of Greed is to, is to open your heart to Advent. This is what, this is why the church creates this season. I was out visiting Nicholas and his brother Alexander. They have an apartment. They're in the, in St. Paul, Minnesota. They're in the Catholic Studies program at the, at the University of St. Paul. This is absolutely, at this, the university itself is, mm, this Catholic Studies program is superb. Um, and I was talking to Nicholas and we were talking about this problem and he said, well, Dad, the problem is not that people don't celebrate Christmas, even non-believers, everybody celebrates Christmas. The problem is nobody observes Advent. Nobody observes Advent. He's absolutely right. So uh, there's, there are a few things we could do. Restrain from the decorating a little bit or at least putting that off to, you know, Gaudete Sunday maybe or waiting a little bit. This is tough in America. One compromise that the Czechs have made is we'll bring the tree into the house but we won't decorate it. You know, until Advent is officially over, something like that, right? Uh, but more important than that, right? Some spiritual reading. Those guys up at Sophia, my friend Chris Bloom, who works for the Augustine Institute, translated these excellent little meditations by Basue. These are, this is a superb volume. They're all about two minutes long, right? These meditations for Advent, something like that. That's the best way. That's the best way. And this takes me Focusing, as these meditations will help us do, on the Christ child takes me to my second point about Christmas. Let's not let our focus on the substance of Christmas be distracted by the sentiment. Undermining Christmas as much as the the, the consumption is the transformation of the holy day into kind of a holiday about feelings of goodwill, right? A kind of humanitarian holiday. This, is a, this Christmas of happy feelings goes back at least to a non-practicing Unitarian named Charles Dickens, who penned what it is, must be the single most famous Christmas novel, A Christmas Carol. By the way, a perfectly sweet, beautifully written and moving book that does not mention the name Jesus Christ once. G.K. Chesterton, who was a great admirer of Dickens, describes his defect in this regard. regard. The tone of Dickens towards religion was philosophically disturbed and historically ignorant. He had that dislike of defined dogmas, which really means a preference for unexamined dogmas. So for Dickens, Christmas is a not too well-defined celebration of the triumph of the human spirit, but absent an understanding that it is, in fact, the incarnation that is the source of the sanctifying grace that animates and elevates this human spirit, the best we're left with is, you know, warm feelings. Nonetheless, so powerful and inviting are the sentiments stirred up by Christmas Carol that people today decorate their homes with little miniature Dickens Christmas villages, right? What are these? They are alternatives to the crash. Take the defined dogma. The dogma of the word made flesh out of the event, but so that we don't miss the dogma, so they don't see that it's missing, replace it with warm scenes. This is what Irving Berlin did with White Christmas, right? Am I saying that Berlin was, you know, altogether sinister in his motives when he was writing the score or the the songs for Holiday Inn? Uh, Probably not, he was probably just interested in making money. <clears throat> but Jewish novelist Philip Roth, 50 years later, reflects with glee on the story of the penning of these songs in his book Operation Shylock, and he seems to hope so. And the New York Times, in reviewing the book when it came out, declared, particularly delicious is an account of how Irving Berlin de the major Christian festivals. He turns the Son of God may man into a holiday about snow and Easter into a fashion show. Now however much malice you want to locate in this anecdote, you have to admit that an abundance of the songs and television programs that Christians devour every Christmas had nothing to do with the metaphysical, theological, and historical truth that the Son of God came into the world to reconcile heaven and earth with his blood. A century ago, Chesterton, a man no one would accuse of not being sentimental, saw that his England had become a land in which the nativity had become an atmosphere and not a creed. An atmosphere and not a creed. Christmas, he wrote in 1911, Christmas is an uncommonly good test case, both pro and con, for those who say that we can live by sentiments without any definite ideas. Up to a certain point, it is perfectly true that Christianity has contrived to carry into a large agnostic age a sort of unmistakable flavor of the popular art and popular virtues of Christianity. The actual origin of these associations is doubtless largely ignored. Santa Claus, of course, is only Saint Nicholas, the patron saint of children, but he has in some ways become more of a goblin than a saint. There have been many thousands of Christmas cards and Christmas books printed to depict him and I doubt whether Five of them depict him with a halo. We talk of Christmas as a kind of peace that reconciles everybody. Here's Chesterton. Yet the two syllables of which Christmas is made are the two words that tear Europe end from end more fiercely than any others. Again, we talk of Christmas as a kind of peace that reconciles everybody. Yet the two syllables of which Christmas is made are the two words that tear Europe from end to end more fiercely than any others. Chesterton understood that the exclusive claims of Christianity are, to borrow Simeon's words, a sign of contradiction the exclusive claims of Christianity are, to borrow Simeon's words, a sign of contradiction to the world. And as Pope St. Paul, John Paul observed 70 years later, it is becoming more and more evident that these words in Luke 2.34 sum up most felicitous, felicitously the whole truth about Jesus Christ, his mission, and his church, a sign of contradiction. Now, none of what I have said so far is in any way to be construed That we're not to make merry at Christmas. Let's not make the mistake of the Calvinists from John Knox to the Massachusetts Puritans. My gosh, anybody who has ever tried to smoke a cigarette these days suffers from that unpleasant legacy that's so much a part of the United States. Enjoy the snow and the sleigh bells. Heaven knows the Czech boys now in San Diego would like to see some snow. But let's not let the snow and sleigh bells replace the more profound joy rather let us take hold of the joy that the mystery of the word made flesh offers to those who love him and keep his commandments. And let's not be signs of contradiction only at Christmas, let us carry the spirit of contradiction throughout the year for a full restoration of Christian culture. And so with the three hours I have remaining, I would like to <laughs> devote my remarks to a road map for a genuine restoration beginning this Christmas of Christian culture. And I begin with from the Psalms, Nolite confidere in principibus in filius hominum in quibus non salus. The passage is from Psalm 145 or 146, depending on if you're a rad trad or not. It's given in the Douay version as Put not your trust in princes in the children of men in whom there is no salvation. Now the fact is when the psalmist penned these lines 3000 years ago a man might be excused for looking to his ruler to see that his lot in life was not too severe, that justice prevailed in the kingdom, some higher civilization might be cultivated through royal example. Throughout antiquity you had your Herods and your Neros and your Caligulas who exploited their office for material gain or Sybaritic pleasure but there were also Octavians and Trajans and Vespasians and Aurelians Whose actions were motivated by a desire to serve the common good, secure the borders, promote learning, right? Octavian's sister, Octavia, sent Virgil 10,000 pieces of silver in gratitude for his Aeneid. And even the Medicis, you know, Italy's first crime family, uh, <laughs> they had the good sense to support the Florentines, Masaccio, Brunelleschi, Frangelico, Dantello, Michelangelo. As Christian Europe took shape, Monarchs on the order of Charlemagne, whom I know we've talked about here before. Ferdinand Isabella, also who we've talked about. Philip of Spain, another one, aimed with all sincerity to unite their governments with the government of God. And some achieved sanctity along the way. Alfred the Great, right, who translated Boethius. Edward Confessor, who built Westminster Abbey. Louis IX, the Crusader King of France, who also labored to create a just economy. Our age does not produce Charlemagne's or Saint Louis, right? It has not for some time, and yet at the very moment in history when we should be most heeding King David's words, put not your trust in princes, right? We seem to invest no end in hope of today's version of a prince, the politician. Chesterton recognized this trap a century ago. He wrote, at present we all tend to make one mistake. We tend to make politics too important. We tend to forget how huge a part of a man's life is the same under a sultan or a senate, under a Nero or under a St. Louis, right? Or as Sam Johnson rendered the same idea 150 years earlier, how small of all that human hearts endure that part which laws or kings can cause or cure. But King David really gets to it. Put not your trust in princes and the children of men in whom there is no salvation. In other words, friends, the crises of our age, like those of any age, are cultural and in the end, spiritual, they're resolved or not within the realm of good and evil. Americans have a tough time with this idea because so central to American mythology is the idea of progress, right? We tend to think of evil as something vaguely defined, some vaguely defined failure on the part of men to organize properly human society. The thinking goes something like this. We only need to apply the right social systems, or the right technologies, at which point we will at last eradicate all forms of human suffering, and ensure prosperity for all. The chief proponents of this fool's errand in the perfectibility of the human race include guillotine guillotine enthusiast Robespierre, communist Karl Marx, Marx, eugenicist Margaret Sanger, and mass murderers Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong. And the superabundant schemes the meddlers of the world have inflicted on mankind in their effort to eradicate what they call evil are in reality denials of original sin. Evil is not something to be overcome by a political or therapeutic solution. It is personal and it is supernatural. Don't take my word for it. St. Paul, in his letter to Ephesians, last chapter, we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Nonetheless, a lot of Americans, including many Orthodox Catholics, look for solutions to our nation's ills in the outcome of the ballot box, in the legislation of the Senate, or in the judgments of the Supreme Court. To be sure these battles must be fought, But we need to recognize that the legislative battles of our day are reflections of the profound and widening cultural and spiritual divide that threatens to destroy our nation and that is within the cultural institutions, it is within the cultural institutions that the battle for the soul of America must be waged. Chesterton once described education as the soul of a society passing from one generation to the next. Let's expand this and say the soul of our civilization lives or dies, is passed along or not, depending on the health of the cultural institutions in which it through which it is transmitted. So what are these institutions? What am I talking about? We're well, first of all marriage. That's the first. It's the primary. And then the family, right? It's the natural institution without there without which there can be no civilization. And then the church, right? Marriage pre exists the church in all human society. Chesterton "Everlasting Man writes, more holy than the gods of the city are the gods of the heart. Next the church and now because the incarnation is nothing less than the moment where God touches human history, the church is necessary to civilization, there's no going back. All things in human experience must be transformed in Christ. These include all the next set of cultural institutions through which our society lives or breathes, or suffocates, as the case may be. Primary and secondary schools, colleges, universities, and seminaries, right? Because of the incarnation, there can be no complete education that is not Christian education. Last, but powerful nonetheless, are the institutions through which our society lives in art, architecture, music, even those of popular culture. The film and the recording studios, the publishing houses, the presses, every song we hear, every film we see, every book or poem we read, if you're not reading poetry, shame on you, right? Every image painted or photographed upon which we gaze, the buildings in which we live, work, worship, all have the power to edify, to delight, to inspire, or to corrupt. So let me repeat my assertion. Our society lives through marriage and the family, the church, the schools, the universities, and through all the organs of high and popular culture. When these things are in good health, Christian civilization will thrive. When they are weakened or corrupted or in chaos, we are malformed. And this malformation is the condition of our land. The solution is the flourishing of a vibrant Catholic culture on these shores. And that will not be brought forth through elections or legislation. So you will ask me, well, how can it? Right On that score, I bring you tidings of great joy. But I feel it pains first to state that I'm not calling on Catholics (laughs) to withdraw from the world of politics. This country needs good Catholics voting and running for office. And the catechism is explicit about the duties of those who enjoy the benefits of representative government. But what I'm asking you to understand is that by the time a moral issue has made its way to Congress or the court, right, that cultural battle's already been lost. Let's take the question of marriage. By the time President Obama was declaring that his administration was not going to defend the Defense of Marriage Act, which had been duly elected by the United States Congress, passed, and by the time the High Court was pretending to have the capacity, as it has done now and in 35 states, right, to say what marriage is, the marriage battle had been lost. It had been lost in the conversations that take place around the kitchen tables of American homes. It had been lost in the situation comedies that for decades now, decades, have subtly and considerably less subtly today infected American homes with their jolly and affectionate promotion of the homosexual lifestyle. It has been lost in the stories that celebrate alternative family forms that fill the reading texts of America's primary schools. Lost in the articles promoting feminist independence that are the stock and trade of women's magazines, lost in the syllabi in every English department of America's colleges and universities. Trust me, I majored in English. It has been lost in the acceptance of no-fault divorce beginning in my new state of California four decades ago. Lost in the cultural revolution that gave us the illusion of fornication without consequence in the 60s. And it had been lost a generation and a half before that with the thing that made the sexual revolution possible, the contraceptive pill. In other words there is so much rubble to be cleared away, lies to be exposed and then a considerable rebuilding to do on the way to restoration of an authentic Christian culture. It is much easier to destroy than to create, right? Michelangelo took two years to carve the Pieta, a vandal took a swipe at Our Lady's nose in, in, in in a second, Martin. Restoration, Christian civilization was thousands of years in the making. Restoration would take a long time. But here's the good news. We could all go a long way toward the building of a Catholic culture in America by first building a Catholic culture in our homes. I'll go further. This is much more important than voting for your favorite candidate, getting out the vote. Society radiates from the family out, not from government down. Step one, Catholics must first attend to their interior lives. Here's another line of Latin. This one from the ancient Romans. Nemo dot quod non habet." Anybody? Nobody nobody gives what he does not have. Very good. My friends, the only meaningful way to change the world is to restore the binding force that Christianity once exercised on it but we can be part of this effort only if we first transform our own arts in Christ. You cannot save the world, help save the world if you do not see first every day to your own salvation. Our Lord's explicit on this point. Seek ye first, not second, not third. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Changing the culture requires changing our interior lives. Spiritual reading, reading the life of Christ, prayer for the blessed sacrament, Active participation in the Institute of Catholic culture, right? A man cannot do good without first putting his own soul in order. Nemo dot quo known hobbit. We cannot share love of God if we don't have it ourselves, right? And if we don't cultivate it in the interior life. This is, by the way, especially important for, for me, for my friends at Catholic Answers, for all of you here, for anyone interested in doing apostolic work, right? The venerable abbot. Don Chittard. Anybody read his book, Soul of the Apostolate? If you haven't, go get a copy. It was Pius X's bedside book, The Soul of the Apostolate. He makes clear that unless apostolic work is suffused with love of God, it will bear no fruit. He refers to this as the heresy of works. right? I call in St. Paul again to back me up. All you know this one. You've heard it at every wedding. What does he say? Absent love and insight ink capable of penetrating the deepest mysteries of human experience is worthless. Absent love, heroic acts of almsgiving are nothing more than a blaring trumpet. A man can be eloquent, energetic, clever beyond his peers, wise beyond his years. These talents will not serve him at all unless they are leavened by love of Jesus Christ. And St. Paul makes it clear that love is not self-seeking. In fact, it's the opposite. Love seeks the good of the other. That's what it is. That's what love is. It seeks the good of the other. This takes me to my next step. Marriage. Marriage is in a state, of, a state of chaos today, not because of the ugly antics of a handful of noisy deviants, but because of the wholesale retreat from marriage among Christians, Catholics included, who are delaying or abandoning marriage altogether. Here's some quick data. When I was 22, when I was married 23 years ago, most uh, 24 this may i think most <laughs> most american most american households were married couple households most that's not true today most american households are not married couple households when i was born this january 49 years ago 3 quarters can, can you imagine 3 quarters of 24 year olds in america were married 75% Today, that figure, nine, 9%. By the way, in case you think this is not data that applies to Catholics, I'm sorry to disappoint you. In 1972, there were about 8.6 marriages per 1,000 Catholics. That figure today is 2.6. So there are less than a third of the number of marriages among Catholics that there were in 1972. I'll be blunt. The single life is not a vocation. In a very real sense, the vocation to marry does not even require discerning because the human inclination to marry is universal. It can be sacrificed for the higher vocation of the priesthood or religious life. In either case, man is not meant to live alone. I think I read that somewhere. And since the incarnation, man is meant to live in the context of a vow. Look, No one's ever ready to get married or to have children for that matter. There's never enough money, enough higher education, enough job security, enough of a house, indeed enough certainty that you know she's the one. All these objections boil down to something embarrassingly pusillanimous, a lack of faith. Christians are not called to be pusillanimous, we're called to be magnanimous. Magnanimity, greatness of heart. This was one of Aristotle's favorite virtues right? Magnanimity requires not only greatness of heart but also the capacity to give the heart away. Monsignor Ronald Knox once said, the problem of our age is not one of broken hearts but hardened hearts and to this I would add that the hardened heart is the heart that is not given away. Only in giving ourselves are we fulfilled. Is there risk in this? Yes, yes. Magnanimity requires risk. And so is my next suggestion, a risk. Having another child. It is the most pro-life thing anyone can do. Those of you who still can, if you want to help create a Catholic culture, bring another Catholic into the world. For those of you who have done these things, here's my next suggestion. Cultivate the life of the domestic church in your homes. First step, turn off the noise. Unplug the television curtail your time online. Here's an easy way. My friends at the seminary in St. Paul do this. They do a tech fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. No tweeting or whatever that is. Cell phone, email, internet. Two days a week. They just drop out of that. It's not just the content of the online world. right? That's the problem. It's the effect that the modern communication technology has on human interaction. By the way, the church has recognized this for a very long time. Three decades ago. Long before all this stuff that we live with today. Couldn't function without today, right? Before the pace of electronic communication reached its current frenzy, the Holy See's Congregation for for Catholic Education expressed grave concern over the formation of young seminarians reared in a culture of, quote, constant acceleration of instantaneous communication. This was in 1986, the Holy See wrote this. It's called Guide to the Training of Future Priests Concerning the Instruments of Social Communication. <clears throat> it says, 1986, in the past few decades, the instruments of social communication have come to the point of exercising an enormous and profound influence on practically every aspect, sector, and relationship of society. The document goes on to say that uh, sins against chastity are certainly part of this difficulty, but it says that, it goes on to say moral aspects of the mass media should not be reduced merely to considerations of sexual morality, the document identifies a more fundamental human cost of too much electronic and auditory stimuli, and states the needs in seminary formation to find remedies for past excessive use or misuse of the mass media. This is what this document in 1986 recommended for seminarians being trained just because you know they'd grown up with the radio or the, or the Walkman, or the television set, or the movie, right? As an antidote to time wasting and sometimes even alienating indulgence in superficial media programs, the document proposed that students should be guided to the love and practice of reading, study, silence, meditation. They should be encouraged and be provided with the necessary conditions for community dialogue and prayer. This will serve as a remedy of the isolation and self-absorption caused by the unidirectional communication of the mass media. It goes on to to recommend that uh, seminarians get together and engage in frequent group conversation. How about that? In which they will give special attention to correctness of language, clearness of exposition, and logical argumentation. My friends, you don't need to be a seminarian to take this advice to heart. The fact that you're here and you're supporting this excellent organization shows that you understand this need. But in your homes also, cultivate lively and thoughtful conversation. A good step in this direction is to fill the new time that you have made by unplugging the television set with books, right? If you need a reading list I recommend John Senior's The Restoration of Christian Culture. He has a superb reading list in the back of that book. All the great stories of the western canon that fire the hearts of the young and teach virtue in the process. By the way this is especially important now Whether your children are in a public or a parochial school, because of the new emphasis for this common core curriculum that Bill and Melinda Gates have convinced the Obama administration should be imposed on young American minds, contains a decidedly deliberate shift from fiction, right, to what they call informational texts, informational texts. These soul deadening readings are designed to create the technocrats of the new America. If you want to fight it, give your kids Homer, give them Virgil. And here's my next suggestion. Give them the language of Virgil. Latin is the language of the West. We all know that Latin helps with math and trains us to think analytically. It does all these things. But as Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI pointed out, if you want to be a citizen of the West, you have to have Latin. In giving your children Homer and and Virgil, You will be giving them something else that is essential to vibrant Catholic homes. Poetry. Poetry is the language of the heart. The action of the heart is love. If you want your children to engage the mysteries of human experience and of our faith, you need to give them poetry. You don't have to take my word for this. The church's most analytical mind. St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that we turn to poetry when the thing, under consideration, does not find sufficient expression in rhetoric or prose. Get your children reading and writing poems. Cultivate a life of music in the home. Take down the fiddle, violin, or the guitar. Learn some folk songs. On this score, by the way, America has a great tradition. And if you exhaust all the American folk songs, Go to the Irish. That is a bottomless pit of folk songs. As Chesterton observed of the Irish, for the great gales of Ireland are the men that God made mad, for all their songs are merry, excuse me, for all their wars are merry, and all their songs are sad, right? Perhaps I've described many of your homes. If so, deo gracious. If you have had the good fortune to grow up in a home, in a joyful Catholic home, full of Irish drinking songs and Latin poetry, I have one more suggestion for you. It is aimed at anyone here yet young enough he's not or she decided what to do with his life. Be a teacher, be a teacher, be a teacher. Our Catholic schools sorely need young men and women who love Jesus Christ and who want to pass their love and knowledge of our Lord on to the next generation. The question of education is one on which we could dwell really for another three hours, but remember this. The Catholic school, as Pope Leo XIII put it, In the Catholic school, every subject is suffused with Christian piety. So you don't just need to be a religion teacher, right? I knew knew a math teacher in Denver. She had a sign in her classroom that said, to Jesus through math. In my case, it should read, to Calvary through math, like I said. (laughs) My friends, well, that's, that's where we find Jesus. My friends, all the suggestions I've given will not satisfy anyone looking for quick results. It is very difficult for Americans where anything can be had with the swipe of a credit card to take the long view. But the long view is God's view and when we abandon ourselves to his providence, his grace works wonders. Let's finish up with a story for any of us who look at the seemingly impossible task of transforming our culture in Christ. It comes from the life of Francis de Sales. In the 16th century, the Chablais was a province in the Duchy of Savoy. Placed by God, oh 17, you don't get the microphone, it's a long story. Placed by God at the bloody crossroads of France, Italy, and Switzerland, the province was a battleground in the wars spawned by the heresies of that most unpleasant of religious rebels or as St. Francis called him, stinker, right? In an unguarded moment, John Calvin, the iconoclast of Geneva rolled through the pastors of the Chablais, leaving behind political turmoil, hundreds of desecrated churches, and a mere remnant of terrified and persecuted Catholics, maybe a 100 out of 25,000. Holding out for, with hope for a return of the Roman liturgy, the sacraments of the church, and the joys of Catholic life. The man who restored the faith to the Chablais, was St. Francis de Sales. Two years into his priesthood and armed with a Bible and a few texts of Cardinal Bellarmine, joined only by his cousin, Canon Louis de Sales, Francis ventured north. Francis, save the fraternity of his cousin, found himself altogether abandoned in his effort. Most painful was the resistance of his own father, who made every effort to discourage his son, and refused to give him the least sum to support his venture. Father, if I did not desire the responsibility, said Francis, why should I put on the cassock? On the morning of his departure from the, for the Chablais, 14th September, Feast of the Exaltation on the Holy Cross, Francis's father would not even bid his son farewell. Francis established a beachhead at the edge of the Chablais, with the Baron de Hermans, a nobleman loyal to Rome. Each day, Francis and Louis walked the 10 miles into the region's capital city, Fanon. There they preached the Catholic faith to those who would hear. At the end of the day, they walked home. To stay overnight in Fanon would have put their lives in danger, and Francis over the next four years would suffer assassination attempts, attacks by wolves, the privations of winter. The saints' unshod feet left bloody footprints in the snow. More discouraging than the physical suffering was the apparent complete failure of the mission. A year passed, and then another, and then another, and still Francis had just a handful of converts to show for his efforts. In his correspondence, Francis describes preaching Advent sermons to four or five, a number that our internet-burdened age would judge as insufficient, to say the least. Did Francis de Sales yield? Never, for a moment. To the Catholic remnant, he brought the sacraments for which they had so far so <coughs> for which they had longed. He slid his tracks defending the faith under the doors of Fanon's citizens. And with the citizens ranking Calvinist clergy, he treated with abundant measures of insight, wit, patience, and good humor. When Louis showed some signs of losing hope, Francis smiled and assured him that they had planted so much seed that the harvest would not be far off. In the fourth year, like ears of wheat, the converts came. At first by ones and twos. A laborer here, a prominent Calvinist theologian there. Before long, Francis' field flourished with thousands of souls brought back to Holy Mother Church. As he later described it, the vines were exhaling their perfume. The conversion of the Chablais is one of the great stories of Catholic apologetics, and it was not brought about by legislation or election. Why did St. Francis succeed? because his apostolic work was done out of love for God. Following the words of our Lord to St. Peter in Luke chapter 5, St. Francis, after his own long night of catching no fish, put out into the deep, as they say here, "Duke in altum. My friends, I'll close with this. However you decide to put out into the deep, do it with joy. All of you know that on October 7th, 1571, the galleys of the Holy League squared off in the Bay of Lepanto against the galleys of the Islamic East. Christendom was saved by the intercession of Our Lady, and we honor the event each year by celebrating her Holy Rosary on October 7th, but maybe you did not know this detail. The Holy League was commanded by the young Captain General, the 24-year-old Don John of Austria, as his flagship Real was about to collide with the Ottoman flagship Sultana Don John, who was famous throughout Christendom as a great dancer, broke into a galliard on the prow of his vessel. So imagine, the 24-year-old captain general consumed with anticipation of the impending battle leaping and landing there by the bow cannons and imagine the cheers the sight of his manifest thrill must have sent throughout his soldiers and now imagine seconds later Spanish infantry, the world's finest boarding sultana, steel flashing and Don John himself leading the charge and receiving and brushing off a wound to the leg that just a few moments before had been dancing. What is this? It is putting out into the deep with joy. We should expect nothing less from a Christian soldier squaring off against the forces of evil. Chesterton in The Ballad of the White Horse describes Alfred the Great. He's lost all of his kingdom, but about a, a, a marshy island about the size of a football field. Does he curl up into a ball? No. The men of the East may spell the stars and times and triumphs, Mark, but the men signed to the cross of Christ go gaily in the dark from Alfred the Great, badly outnumbered by the Danes, to Christopher Columbus reading the last gospel every night at the bow of Santa Maria, a second-hand sea-tossed vessel no more than maybe 60 feet long, to Hernan Cortez conquering the demon-worshiping Aztec kingdom with only 500 Spanish soldiers, to Thomas More cracking jokes on his approach to the shambles, to Don John dancing with sword, Drawn, about to give battle, Christians have ever gone with joy into the dark. They have always put out into the deep with joy. It is this joy, my friends, that is our patrimony as Christians. It is the one word with which we can best describe our faith. Joy. This joy is sanctified and made holy in the service of Christ. But like all great things, in Christendom we find glimpses of it. In ancient times, as the world anticipated what we celebrate this month, the incarnation. One more story. Remember the Spartans defending the hot gates at Thermopylae? If you don't, go home and pick up Herodotus tonight and read it. The Spartans are outnumbered 500 to 1 by the army of Xerxes. As they prepare for battle one of the Spartans declares that he has heard that the Persian army is so numerous that when they let fly their arrows they block out the sun and what does the Spartan Dianache say? Good. Then we shall have our fight in the shade. (laughs) That is joy. (laughs) My friends I do not think we will have our fight in the shade. I think we will have it in the black of night that threatens to consume our troubled age. But nio desperandum, one more Latin phrase, despair not. St. Paul assures us that grace is most abundant when it is in greatest demand. All of us have access to the infinite graces of the sacraments of the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. And we have something that I can assure you will see us through every possible challenge and trial the maternal solicitude of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Remember, Our Lady is a mother most merciful, but she is also the fierce fighter who crushes the head of the serpent and is prefigured in the Song of Songs. Who is she that cometh forth as the morning rising, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, terrible as an army set in array? To be sure, Hernan Cortez faced down and vanquished the forces of darkness, on the North American continent, but it was through the intercession of Our Lady of Guadalupe that a Christian culture flourished on these shores, and through her intercession, may it flourish again. Thank you. What of the uh, season of Christmas being also joy mingled with sorrow, in that we remember the massacre of the Holy Innocents, the massacre of Saint Stephen and of Saint Thomas Becket, in tempering the possible irrational sentimentality of Christmas. I think it's I think it's a, a, an excellent observation. Uh, I, I don't know what I can add to it. Um, uh, of course, in Saint Stephen, the first martyr, right, proto martyr. And then the the Massacre of the Innocents, uh, a particularly, um, you know, terrifying tale. Uh, So, uh, yeah, well said. And, of course, every Mass which calls our attention to uh, the sacrifice um, explains what this incarnation is really about.
0: Mary Sue, writing in online, asks the question, uh, what do you think about parents telling the Santa Claus story to their children as though it were true?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm not against it. Well, I mean, as though it were true, I don't know. I, uh, I, think, that, I think that it's, in our house, because we have a bunch of Nicholas's, we actually, he actually comes twice. So he came this morning, and he's going to come again. Uh, but we say St. Nicholas. My kids are, are, are grown now to the point where it's more fun than anything. Um, I don't know however much they ever took it seriously. My friend Matt Fradd, uh, who worked with us at Catholic Answers for a time and has since gone on to um, promote uh, one of these uh, softwares, uh, Covenant Eyes, that uh, helps men and women, I suppose now, who are struggling with uh, the online uh, pornography addictions. Um, Matt, Matt has a website, mattfrad.com, in which he, he argues very strenuously against it. So if you're looking for such an argument, uh, you, can, you can find one there. I heard Patrick Madrid on his show talking the other day disagreeing with uh, Matt Frad on this point. I think it's a pleasant enough tradition, uh, and it's one of those things that enters in the realm of myth. The real difficulty is having children not become, you know, greedy. That's the challenge of the season. As far as present giving goes
0: yeah just a question how did uh, saint nicholas turn into santa claus and where did that come from
1: well i think like i said at the beginning of the, my remarks the, the 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 tradition derives from uh the the giving of these dowries to the young girls but all throughout the life of saint nicholas are acts of charity he inherits a, a considerable fortune from his parents and he gives a lot of it away and, uh, uh, you know, both before uh, he becomes Bishop of Myra and then he's put in prison for a time, uh, tortured, probably, or beaten or something. It's very interesting, in, um, uh, in very, very recent years, they've done uh, extensive, like in the past, well, in the 50s, uh, they did extensive analysis of the bones, which were in Bari, there, uh, which is in southern Italy on the um, east coast, southern east coast, kind of a tough town, by the way, uh, but the relics were in Myra, which is in Asia Minor, and they were uh, in, the, in the 11th century, you know, as the Turks were coming in, in those events that immediately precede the Crusades, um, for safety, <laughs> you know, some Western Christians came and took the relics to the church in Bari, where they have uh, rested all this time. And they, um, they continue to exude, his bones continue to exude this Uh, oil uh, or manna they call it or balm which has uh, healing qualities so you know he he continues uh, he continues to give but they did some analyses of the bones I know I'm not answering your question Uh, they did some analyses of the bones and they found that uh, he had a broken nose and so this may have something that happened during the translation of the relics or maybe some injury that he uh, suffered under the persecutions of Diocletian, or I don't know, but but the tradition comes from his acts of giving, and then the universal appeal of this saint, who uh, in the absence, by the way, for a long time of any written record, um, uh, spreads. I can't think of another saint quite like this story. Actually, uh, you know, I, I, the closest thing that I could think of would be like Santa Lucia, who is or Lucia, who's a a Sicilian martyr um, uh, in, the, in the in the second century or third century maybe is is honored in, in Sweden by these you know Swedish Lutherans or whatever. It's the strangest thing, but um, it, it's his act of gift giving. But in the United States, so Dutch uh, Dutch, um, I don't know what they are. Dutchmen in New York uh, grab onto the idea. It's useful in advertising in the middle of the nineteenth century. The uh, the, 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 associating the gift giving with Christmas, the um, the poem by Clement Moore uh, reinforces the point. Uh, and then you know, in the in in reaction to some of the um, temperance league, uh, the Coca Cola company gets because get, there's very famous illustrations of Nicholas done uh, that you know we think is almost the image that everybody has today. Uh, the image sort of the fat fellow with the the, the bottle of Coke and uh, but I. Um, there's a, uh, there's a very good book that came out by a Protestant just in 2011, and it's St. Saint, Saint Nicholas, The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus. And forgive me for not remembering the man's name. I think Alexander's the title. Baylor University Press, uh, The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus. And he traces a lot of th- th- this. It's much better than, I'm sorry to say this. it's in Washington, D.C. It's much better than Bill Bennett's book, which is kind of nice and charming, but this one is much better researched.
0: Thank you, Chris. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155.